We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you'll join me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I don't know about you guys, but I love to complain. It, just, it feels good sometimes, doesn't it? Right? Am I the only one? I, I, I thought we could be honest in church. Right? It just it feels good to complain sometimes. And I, I can complain about anything. I can complain about the cost of groceries. I can complain about the cost of eggs. I can complain about the fact that there's just not the same amount of chips in the chip bag as there used to be, but they're charging more for them. I can complain about waiting in traffic. I can complain about waiting in line to drop the kids off at school. I complain about the lines at In-N-Out and, and Chick-fil-A. Have you guys been in those lines lately? crazy. I complain about my local sports teams. I complain about what's on TV. I complain about politics. And you know what? I complain about the weather in Arizona. When it's too cold, I complain about how cold it is. And then when it's too hot, I complain about how it's too hot. And it's always too cold or too hot. It's never perfect. Well, actually, it's kind of nice right now. But I, I, I love to complain. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And really, what is complaining? We can look at the, uh, the Israelites as they walked through the desert and God had delivered them from bondage. They were slaves to Egypt and God dramatically saved them from just back-breaking labor and he was bringing them into the promised land and they still found reasons to complain. And really, it's about unmet expectations, isn't it? We think things should be a certain way, and they're not, so we like to complain. We think think things should be a certain way, and we can't do anything about it, or we won't do anything about it, but it's sure easy to talk about it, isn't it? And the reason I bring this up is it's something that the Lord has been working on in me personally, especially as we've been studying Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Because as he began in chapters one and two, he was calling the church to be the fragrance of Christ. He says, to God, you are the fragrance of Christ. To some, that will smell like death, leading to death, to those who are perishing, but to others, it'll smell like life, leading to life for those who are being saved. And then he began to tease that out all the more into chapter three, when he explained that we're living letters. We are letters written by the Spirit of God for all men to read. And the content of that letter, Paul tells us, is the new covenant that is found in Jesus Christ. And I simplified that new covenant to a simple invitation, come and live. That's the story we should be telling. But what story do I tell the people around me when I complain? When I'm constantly complaining about the world around me, how things are just not the way they should be. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking at the world and knowing things are supposed to be different. And they will be. But what do I tell my kids 
when I constantly complain? Am I testifying of a good God? Am I testifying as a good, of a God who redeems and sla- saves lives and transforms lives and transforms cultures? Or do I just tell them, ah, oh, man, things are not the way they should be with no path forward. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in 2 Corinthians. Let's lead, read the, I want, I want us to have the entire chapter in front of us right now before we begin to pull it apart. So let's read chapter four, one through eight, 18, all the way through, then we'll pray and begin. Paul writes, therefore, and what does Pastor John always say? If you see a therefore, you wonder, well, what's it there for? <laughs> and what does he say? Since we have this ministry, therefore, since we have this ministry of the new covenant, therefore, since we have a ministry of new life, sharing a message of hope, sharing the desires of God's heart to see men and women brought from the clutches of death and given new life. Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You may want to underline that. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation, by making known the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed." We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, 
Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for but a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you'd speak this morning. Lord, prepare us to hear your word. Prepare our hearts for your wisdom from on high. Lord, I pray that we would never take for granted the gift that you've given us and preserving your holy word. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's, there's a characteristic, and I know I've talked about this a great deal. There's a characteristic, the older that I get, I begin to appreciate it more and more. And I don't know about you guys, there's certain things that at this point in my life, I wish I could go back and tell my younger stu- self how important they are, like naps. I wish I could go back and tell... <laughs> My eight-year-old self, man, naps are amazing. You know, mom and dad, they're telling you to take a nap. Take hold of that. Enjoy it. (laughs) But one of those things, I I think as a young man, even as a young Christian, I loved just dramatic displays of God's power. You know, we were all about the conferences and going to to different um, events where uh, music was loud and, and there was just an emotional high when it came to the things of the Lord. Um, and those have their place. We like breakthroughs, don't we? We like these big moments in life where we turn from something and embrace what God would have for us. But what I value even more nowadays is faithfulness, consistency. Loyalty was the word that came to mind. Really summed up, continued commitment under duress. Because we can have momentary victories, right? We can see momentary moves of God and moves of the Spirit, dramatic displays that cause us to fall down on our knees, but that doesn't always translate to our everyday lives, And I think that's why these conferences sometimes are so successful. They are promising something in an instant. And our culture loves things in an instant. Rarely have I seen these conferences advertise and say, hey, let's begin a journey that's going to take a lifetime. Instead, it's, hey, let's unlock God's blessing now. Deliverance, renewal, all good things but I think sometimes we're addicted to the instantaneous. Even though we've spent a lifetime developing habits, we want those habits dealt with in an instant. And sometimes God does work in those ways, but for the most part, God is a God of the process, right? Shaping and refining and molding and turning us into the image of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes that process is painful, and we don't like the pain that goes along with it. So for me, I've come to appreciate in others and desire for myself consistency, a continued commitment to Jesus over many, many years, despite the challenges and the pressure and the duress. We just don't value those things much anymore. We celebrate charisma over character. We like momentary acts of heroism instead of a lifetime of of humble service. We like public displays of generosity instead of a private life of unheralded giving. We like the big checks, right? Where the celebrity comes out and they they sign their name and they give that check to to a charity. But what about the, the person who didn't have much, but they gave of what they had consistently throughout a lifetime and nobody knew about it? The left hand never knew what the right hand was doing. We like things that meet our needs in the moment. And we do, we live in a temporary society, don't we? Where we use things until they don't serve us any longer and then we throw them away. We use things until it gets hard and then we throw them away. I'm committed as long as my needs are being met, but if things get hard, if something better comes along, I'm moving on. And unfortunately, that has bled into the church. How many of you have heard someone say, yeah, I tried that Christianity, it just didn't work for me? I tried just that Jesus thing. It just, it just didn't work for me. And I think it's how we have explained what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's this thing that, that within the church, many call it easy believism. Where, hey, if you can just mentally acknowledge that Jesus Christ existed at one point in time, you'll be saved. If you can just mentally come to the place that, yeah, Jesus did exist. Hey, maybe he exists now. Just believe and receive. But that's not faith in scripture. Even the demons know that Jesus is the son of God and they tremble at it. But when scripture talks about faith, It is talking about faithfulness. When scripture talks about faith, it is talking about loyalty and, a better word, allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that is far more than an intellectual affirmation of the existence of Jesus Christ. The Encyclopedia Encyclopedia Britannica traces the first use of the word loyalty back to the 15th century when it was primarily referred to as fidelity and service, fidelity in love, or to an oath that one has made to another. Webster's defines it as having or showing complete and constant support for someone or something And if you look at Jesus' words, it's pretty evident that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he invites the crowds to come and follow him. He doesn't say, hey, come and believe in my existence. That would sound ridiculous because he was standing right in front of them. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
that sounds like far more than just an intellectual agreement of existence. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the personification of riches and wealth. And God, Jesus says, you can't have two kings. You cannot have two kings in your life and be loyal to both because at some point, one king is going to make demands that the other king doesn't like. And you'll have to decide which king do you serve. So Jesus asks for our loyalty. He asks for our allegiance. And he deserves it. Because he's been faithful to us. And as we'll see this morning, he, he's faithful even when we're not faithful. Paul writes in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's more than a belief, isn't it? And then in Galatians 2, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That's the true meaning of faithfulness. It's continued loyalty in the face of temptation and trial and testing. And that's why I value it so much in the men and women um, here, and I've said this and I'll say it again until the day, I day, the day I die, I am so grateful for the examples that we have here at Calvary Central of men and women who have remained faithful to Jesus. Not perfect, but here they are running the race faithfully because I know that it's taken a great amount of sacrifice. And that loyalty to Jesus has also bled over to loyalty to their spouses, loyalty to their families, and loyalty to their church family. So that's what Paul is addressing here in chapter four, loyalty. And look at the bookends. What's that phrase that Paul mentions twice in chapter four? Verse one Therefore, since we have this ministry, whenever you think here, Paul say this ministry, it's sharing the new covenant, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we share the gospel as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. What does that mean? What does it mean to lose heart? means to become discouraged. It means to give up. It means to grow weary, not tired. I think if you would ask Paul at any point in his ministry, hey, do you feel tired? He'd be like, yeah, I feel tired. I was just involved in a shipwreck. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty tired. I swam to, to shore. He's not talking about being tired. He's talking about growing weary. He's talking about despair. He's talking about hopelessness. But listen to what he says in verse eight. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not what? 
crushed. You know what that means, hard-pressed? It means the walls are closing in on you. The walls are trapping you. The word there really is like imprisoned. The walls are pressing in. But he says, we're not crushed by them. It may feel like everything is on your shoulders, but Paul says, we're not crushed. I know how you feel. This is how he, how he addresses the church. I know how you feel, but the way you feel does not line up with the reality of the way things are. You feel like you are being crushed, but you are not. You are perplexed, or he says we are perplexed. What does that mean? It means puzzled, confused. How many of you are confused this morning about what's going on in the world? You look at things and you're like, what? It doesn't make any sense, but it does. When you consider who the ruler of this age is, it is confusing and that's okay, but he says we do not despair and the root word of despair in the Greek is hopelessness. It's okay to be confused, but when we start losing hope, that's a problem. It's okay to say, man, I have no idea what's going on, but then to say, and I don't think God's on the throne anymore. That's the despair. But Paul says, yeah, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair because we know who is on the throne. Then he says, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're not abandoned. We feel the pressure from others to be quiet about Jesus. We see the caricatures of Christians in media. He says, but God hasn't abandoned us. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We may have been tripped up, Paul says, but the war has not been lost. We always carry about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So Paul says, regardless of the circumstances, we remain faithful in the face of immense pressure. Faithful to what? Faithful to Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on him. We keep our affections placed on him. We remain steadfast to the truth and the call that God has placed on our life to go out into the world and to be the salt and the light. Paul is agreeing now that, hey, it's gonna, there's gonna be opposition. And let me tell you this, the opposition during Paul's time was much greater than the op- opposition we face today. And the message still doesn't change. We're hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we do not despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And we carry the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus' death for our sins and his victory over death We carry that in our body. And we renounce the hidden things of shame. What are the hidden things of shame that Paul's referring to? He tells us. He says, we don't walk in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. We don't use the word of God to manipulate. 
We don't use the word of God for personal gain. We don't use the word of God to beat up somebody we disagree with. It's not our tool. In fact, we're not even called to necessarily defend it, right? What, Paul, Pastor, aren't we supposed to defend our faith? Absolutely. But I, 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 I don't know if it was Spurgeon who said this, but he said, we defend scripture like we defend a lion in a cage. How do you defend a lion in a cage? You open the door and you let the lion out. Scripture defends itself. Now, do we, do we study? Do we read? Do we have an answer for the hope that we have found? Absolutely. But we're not God's lawyers. We're God's messengers. Some people will reject it. People will welcome it because they desire to the message to be saved. I, I am certain we remain faith, faithful as we endure. And again, on Jesus, that as we remain loyal, again, like I said, bleeds over to keep our eyes fixed lives, to our children, fealty to God, church, to our family, but it all loyalty to our wife with loyalty to Jesus. Witness to our divorce rate so high because we start lost sight of Jesus. Is the divorce rate so high because we lost sight of Jesus? Why are so many kids being raised? in fatherless homes or motherless homes because we've lost sight of Jesus. How can we claim, still today, 80% of Americans claim to be Christians, but the nation does not reflect that because it's not simply what we say to be just a belief in an intellectual, an intellectual agreement that Jesus exists. It comes down to allegiance, following him. A young man, a young uh, businessman who traveled a great deal was bragging to his friend that he never cheated on his wife with another woman as long as he was 50 miles within his home. That, that's how far his loyalty went. His loyalty went 50 miles. <laughs> how far does our loyalty to Christ go? What other kings, what other idols are in our life that yes, Jesus, I'll follow you up until this point? Up until it gets this difficult. Up until these other kings in my life make a different demand on me. That's contrary to what you desire for me. I'll follow you up to this point. You get 50 miles, Jesus, but no further. Oswald Chambers writes, to be faithful in every circumstance means that we only we have only one loyalty, and that is to our Lord. The idea is not that we do work for God, but that we are so loyal to him that he can do his work through us. And all this talk about loyalty, I think it comes back to where the church is today. We are losing heart. We're growing weary. We're being discouraged. We're becoming discouraged. We're just, we're just, we're done with the world, we're done with our neighbors, we're done with the church, and we're done with Jesus. 
And we may, may not say it out loud, but our actions display that. And I know that I can get that way sometimes because I just look at how often I complain about the way things are. But Paul says we do not lose heart. And if you're here this morning saying, well, I am. Paul, you may not lose heart, but I'm losing heart because I'm discouraged, I'm exhausted, and I'm ready to give up. Then this chapter's for you. Because I think we will all find ourselves at one point in this place, and Paul's teaching is really a tonic to that discouragement. Again, look at verse one. Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. How many of you have heard the term burnout before? Christian burnout, ministry burnout. We treat it like it's just a normal part of the Christian life sometimes. Yeah, you serve, you go as hard and as long as you can, and then you burn out. You're called to a certain area of ministry. You start out, you're excited, you're energetic. There's all this hope for what is in front of you, but over time, the passion starts to fade. It's not as exciting as it used to be. You start going through the motions. You start getting bitter with people. It's no longer a privilege. It becomes a chore. You dread the ministry that's in front of you. And we say, okay, that's just burnout. Guys, we don't see that in Scripture. That's not the normal pattern for Christian ministry. Evidence of burn. Look at Luke 18.1, if you will. Let's look at the words of Jesus to get our mind right. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Jesus spoke a parable to them. And right off the bat, we get the purpose of the parable. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And therein lies a really good indicator that you're getting burnt out, that you're growing weary. Are we still communing with God? I mean, really think about this, because I can say, guys, are we praying? Are we praying enough? Are we praying and reading our Bible? But, but let me ask this. Are we spending time with the creator of the universe and interceding on behalf of those who do not know him? Is that the language of our walks right now? Or is the language of our walks simply complaining about the, thing, the way things are without once taking them to the Lord and saying, God, work. Use me if you can, use me if you desire to, but God, you are much bigger than the the adversity that we see in front of us. Have your way. But when we get burnt out, we don't even go down that road. We get so frustrated with the things around us that we throw up our hands and what do we do? We just like to talk about it. If we're gonna talk, might as well talk to the Lord. He spoke this parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Those are the two extremes. Either we're praying or we're growing weary. Then he says, 
I love this parable. He says, there was a, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. She kept coming and coming. She kept on requesting, saying, please, please deliver me, please deliver me. It was like a leaky faucet. And finally the king's like, you know what? Fine, I will. Just stop. And what does God say? Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he really find men and women who are consistently seeking him day in and day out, running to his feet? In Galatians 6, 7, Paul writes, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he also will reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. So Paul then, okay, so Jesus has already tied prayer to not losing heart, right? Now Paul ties walking in the spirit of God to not losing heart. Guys, when we start in the flesh or we continue in the flesh, when we do things for our own glory, it can look really righteous on the outside, but when we're in it for us, we will lose heart. When we don't get the affirmations and the pats on the back and the appreciation we think we deserve, we can be doing something that looks great on the outside, but if we're doing it in the flesh, we will burn out. The Spirit of God is the fuel for ministry. He is the fuel. It's not a power, it's, it's the person of God. And without Him, we are just going through the motions. Paul also says in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but they're busybodies. Now those who are such, we command, command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. I've been in ministry long enough to know those who are doing the least talk the most. That seems really harsh, but but I've seen it in my own life. It's really easy to play armchair quarterback. I, I love it. I love watching my favorite football team and seeing like a kicker miss a field goal. I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? Dude, I can't kick a football five feet, let alone kick it 50 yards. But here I am sitting on the couch complaining. But when it's in ministry, 
For we hear that some of you are walking in a disorderly manner, Paul says. You're not working at all, but you're talking. And again, that's a wonderful indicator, not wonderful, but it's an indicator that we've lost heart. If we got time to talk, but we don't got time to serve, there's a problem there. If we have time to critique, but we don't have time to give of ourselves, now, you know what? I, I love when someone's completely involved, they are all in, and they have ideas about how we can do things better. That's a wonderful thing. There are people who have been so transformed by the Spirit of God that you can't keep them out of ministry. You can't keep them from serving their church family. If you stand in their way, they're going to run you over because God has changed their lives. And I, I invite all of us into that. That's a wonderful place to be. But maybe we've lost heart. Or maybe we've made it about us at one time, about our talents or our gifts. Or somehow we believe the lie that the ministry hangs on us and it was too much of a burden to bear, so we've left a little bit disillusioned. Maybe we're carrying a lot of church hurt where we felt underappreciated. And maybe we need to move past getting pats on the back and getting noticed and just return to our allegiance to Jesus. See, Paul understood this thing about the ministry that he had been given. He says it was a gift of mercy. When he looked at his calling and the many miles he traveled by land and sea to spread the message of the gospel, to love and serve others, he realized the only reason he was doing it because, was because God gave him a gracious gift, a gift that he didn't deserve. See, some people believe that they've earned the right to minister. Some people believe that they've earned the right to teach or to preach or to lead God's people. They've been to seminary. They've got the degrees. They believe that they've, God's got something special with them. But guys, none of us are worthy to preach the gospel. None of us are worthy to share this remarkable gift of salvation and redemption with anyone. It's not our gift to even share. Have you ever been, had the opportunity to be the bearer of good news that you had nothing to do with? Like as a pastor, a lot of times people will give anonymously to another family and they'll say, hey, can you give this to this family? I don't want you to, them to know it's from me. So I get to carry this gift and I get to give it to the family and I get to watch their reaction, but I had nothing to do with it. I was just carrying the gift to the family. What if I was like, yeah, that's me. Uh, I, this is from me. How, how messed up would that be? Someone did something amazing from, for someone else and they just asked you to give that person the good news and you get to be the recipient of the joy and happiness even though you had nothing to do with the gift. Welcome to the ministry. That was Paul's ministry. And he was simply a vessel with the privilege of carrying the good news out into the world. 
And guys, I'm reminded of this every time I step into the pulpit, especially when I start to cough. I I shouldn't be here. Like, I I do not deserve to be in this place sharing with you the truths of God's word. I I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. The only thing I can do is hope to get out of the way and let God's word take center stage. That's not to say that there is responsibility and preparation, but this ministry is a gift from God. It's a gift of mercy. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it, but we get to be a part of it. And where has that we get to be a part of it been lost? For some, it's we have to. It's my duty, or God will be mad at me. If I don't do this, if I don't serve, God's gonna be upset with me. No, we've grown weary if that's our mindset. And then look at what Paul says in verse seven. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Remember the laws of first mention when studying scripture. What does Paul mean that we have this treasure in earthen vessels? Well, let's talk about what that treasure is real quick in verse four. That treasure is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the treasure. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. We're just bondservants. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. So, what is this treasure? It's Jesus shining through the believer. It's the light of Christ shining through. And now, how many of you want that? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't know many Christians that are like, nah, I'd rather not people see Jesus in me. Uh, Let's talk. That might be. (laughs) But what happens when we hear it comes with a cost? Oh yeah, I want Jesus to to be made known through my life, through my words. I want Jesus to be made evident. evident. But what's the cost? See, that term that Paul uses, we are treasures, we carry treasures in earthen vessels. It's a call back to the Old Testament and the story of, of Gideon, just real quick. Here's what J. Vernon McGee once preached. He said, the analogy of earthen vessels takes us back to the incident at the time of Gideon. It's a story that epitomizes the verse, through my weakness, he is made strong. In Judges 7, we read that Gideon took only 300 men with him to free their land of innumerable Midianite invaders. Each man had a trumpet and a torch and a pitcher or an earthen vessel. They carried their torches in the earthen vessels so that the light couldn't be seen from a distance. Then when they got among the Midianites, they broke the earthen vessels, and it wasn't until the earthen vessels were broken that the light could shine out. Yeah, I want to, I want to be a reflection of the light of Christ. But what happens when we have to be broken? 
the ministry that we have been given by the mercy of God is a ministry of brokenness and vulnerability. It's, a, it's not a ministry of the self-made man. It's a ministry of dependence on the son of man. And that's something we cannot forget. If we think the ministry of the gospel is an easy life, you have not been prepared for what's in front of you. Psalms 51.17, the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. We need our hearts broken over our own sin and the sin of others so that the light of Christ will shine through. That's the ministry of the gospel. And that's why Paul says, we do not lose heart because he understood Number one, it wasn't his ministry. And number two, he was willing to be broken because he knew that it was in his weakness that Jesus was made strong. We'll continue this next week. But Paul finally addresses one of the difficulties that I think we all face in ministry, and that's the continual rejection of the gospel. And how easy it is to become hard-hearted. But we'll save that for, for next week.